Welcome to Crop Watch Podcast, a production of Nebraska Extension. Well, welcome to another edition of Fridays with the Scientists. Today we have Brian Harris, Earth Scientist from Booz Allen and a former Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force. Brian, how are you this morning? I'm great, Eric. It's great to be with you this week. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. You're welcome. How are things down in Tampa, Florida this morning? Well, we just had a cold front come through. Um, so I'm not going to complain about the cold, though, because, uh, you know, my all my brothers and sisters up to the north uh, would, would just kind of laugh if I said, you know, 60 degrees in the middle of December is cold. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not too bad down here. How are things in Nebraska? Well, pretty good. It's a nice morning up here. It was both 20 degrees when I left the house, walked up here. So nice morning. Not not much wind. It's uh, still above average for this time of year. We really haven't had any significant cold yet. I've only worn a stocking cap and gloves just a couple of times so far this winter. I have a funny story about this. So we actually moved to Nebraska from Monterey, California. We I'd been, we had been in Monterey for almost a couple of years. That had been a shock and- in a lot of ways. Well, I'm from the Midwest, though, so, you know. Were you from, uh, originally from Iowa? I'm originally from Iowa, so, you know, it's kind of getting back to our roots there. But we've been in California, acclimated to California for a couple of years. So we go out February to do house hunting in advance of our move to Nebraska. And, I mean, it was probably 38, 40 degrees when we landed there. It was a lot of snow on the ground, though, from, you know, from the weeks previous to that. And we show up in 38 and we're like all in our puffy winter jackets. And then all, all the Nebraska folks, all they got on is like maybe a sweatshirt and they're in their shorts. And so we <laughs> felt like a, felt like a couple of uh, winter weenies right there. But anyway. Yeah. I'd almost got to imagine in Tampa, it seems like there's a lot of uh, folks from the Midwest that, you know, either spend the winters there or retire down there. And, you know, if you're just visiting, in the winter, it's like, you know, those of us from up here is probably like walking around in shorts and t-shirt at 65 and people have been living down there for 20 years, probably think it's a little chilly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all about acclimation, right? Uh, yep. We, we acclimate to the environment that we're in, um, you know, and, and it usually takes at least, you know, a few months to, you know, maybe a couple of years, but once you're acclimated, you're used to that environment. So you go to something different and it, it can be a shock to the system for sure. Yeah. Well, I think once you spend time outdoors when the wind chills 45 below, you're you're you, you sort of reclassify what extreme cold is. And granted, 45 below wind chill is still not bad compared to um say you know, what they get in Siberia or you know parts of Canada in the winter. So right. that's relative. Acclimation. That's right, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean I guess the you know, we I keep getting asked like well, it's when are we finally going to start getting moisture from El Nino? And I'm like, well, right now that subtropical jet has been oriented more toward the southeastern part of the country. And until we see evidence that it's, you know, going, coming in a lot further west, I don't really see us getting a lot of moisture. But you guys really have uh, had some pretty good storms down there this uh, last month or so, haven't you? We did. We had some tornadic storms uh, last month or two months ago. Um you know, come to find out, you know, and I, I've only lived down in the Tampa area since I retired from the Air Force about a year and a year and a half ago, but talked with the National Weather Service and, um, you know, during El Nino years for Florida, uh, get a lot of, a lot more storms because of that subtropical jet kind of reaching up into our area. And that's, 
you know, you look at the Climate Prediction Center, that's what they're calling for, right? The southern tier of the U.S., particularly the southeast, a lot more a lot more precipitation events for sure. Yeah, like their, their recent uh, update, which I guess has now been about three or four weeks ago at this point, but I mean, they weren't just showing above average for the southeast. Like they were like very, very bullish on uh, precipitation southeast. I don't know if I've ever seen a seasonal outlook that was that bullish on something being above average. Uh, for yeah. Temperature precipitation. Usually think, it's kind of like in that gray, gray area. Yeah. I think when you get uh, such a strong El Nino, um, and there was a good article that Noah had on like the past strong El Ninos, like consistently the Southeast is just peppered with a lot more precipitation, higher precipitation events. So the confidence obviously goes up. The southwestern U.S. and western U.S., there's been some hit or miss. Like in general, they're expecting, I think, higher than normal precipitation. But there's been some drought years even uh, for some El Nino times out in the southwest. But generally, more precipitation out there. Right. Well, I think the last uh, one in 15, 16 was very strong. But from my recollection, California really didn't do very well from that El Nino, other than maybe a couple of events. Yeah, it was the next winter that was just incredibly wet there that they ended a lot of, uh, you know, temporarily ended some drought. I mean, to this point, actually, it's been the Pacific Northwest has been getting uh, kind of hammered with moisture, which is kind of opposite of what you would, would traditionally think with El Nino. But I was looking at some of the composites and at least in the last three or four, what I call moderate or strong El Ninos, there was a little bit of a wet signal up there. So, I mean, maybe that's just a... Maybe it just takes a little bit stronger El Nino for them to have um, the polar jet in that area, giving them better moisture, or maybe that's just a sign of some changes that we're that we're seeing. Yeah, I think in general, uh, I mean, so so there's some general things that we can expect during La Ninas and El Ninos and that sort of thing, but there's exceptions to every everything that we expect just because. You know, you've got other oscillations at play here. You've got, you know, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. You've got, you know, the NAO, uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation on the, on the, uh, the East Coast. So, I mean, like, there's all these different factors, you know, the sea surface temperatures being, you know, different. Uh, so, I mean, there's just a lot of things that we can say with general certainty, but there's always exceptions to the norm, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been telling people and I've been giving talks about the outlook that, you know, the, the forecasts are largely kind of based on what we traditionally would expect from El Nino. And I, I think the media, you know, my opinion, the media sort of doesn't always define climate terms very well, or they, they over, maybe they, they over, I don't know if oversimplify is the right term, but certainly there's a, um, place too much confidence on certain things like i think people they you know they talk about el nino's like there's like this guarantee that certain places are going to get hammered like well no that's if you look at history even like there's no place that just like is an absolute guarantee for moisture in this country uh during yeah. el nino and i think just in general i i think i would even almost say that the you know some of the forecasts are too heavily tied toward el nino i i i made and this may not be the best analogy but but i've sort of told people that the Inso State is sort of like your quarterback for football teams. Like if you're trying to make projections of a football team's wins before the beginning of a season, it's like you are you're not going to have a good forecast if you ignore the quarterback position because that's vitally important, especially now. But if that's the only thing that you look at, 
then, you know, you're probably more often than not, not going to get the right answer. You might be kind of in the ballpark, but you have to kind of consider other things. So I think we put too much, I think we put a little too much emphasis on it. And so, um, and maybe that's because we have more understanding of it than we do some of the other oscillations. Um, the one I'm, I don't understand as well as I, I want to is the Madden Julian oscillations. That seems like that, um, you know, tends to, it's almost like it almost can enhance or sort of offset uh, effects from, from Enso to some degree. Yeah. You think about, you go back to like your physics classes, right. And you think about the different, and we're talking about waves essentially and oscillations. Oscillations are waves, right. Mm -hmm. And so like, if those waves are not in phase, then they cancel out, you know, some, right. some things that we might expect, or if they are in phase, then they obviously amplify. And so I think we saw, you know, some out of phase kind of things kind of happen with, you know, this, uh, this last summer, you know, we normally expect less hurricane activity in the, in the Atlantic, uh, tropical activity that is, and we actually saw slightly above normal um, or above normal um, hurricane activity out in the Atlantic. So, again, there's there's exceptions to the, to, to every norm. I, I think you know, people want certainty, like the general public. They want certainty. They want to know if they got to bring their umbrella, if it's going to rain. And if they don't get that, then they, you know, they bash the weatherman on, on TV or whatever the case is. Um, that's just I mean, that, that that's that's. Yep. It's life and that's meteorology, that's climate, you know, that's, there's a lot, there's still uncertainty and, and we don't know everything that, about how the chaotic atmosphere is going to interact, you know? Sure. Yeah. People want the deterministic forecast, yep. specific values of temperature precipitation. And what I've been trying to do, you know, when I do forecasts or outlooks or things like that every week, or it's like, I, I try and explain the uncertainty in the models um because you know i i i tell people that uh you know especially when you look at the you look at model output seven to 14 days out it's like well i would use it for guidance don't take it literally yeah like there might yeah. be signal there they're often the signals like like the general position of ridging and tropping like that pro that part probably is somewhat accurate but the exact position of an area of low pressure can vary by you know 300 miles at 10 days out actually probably more than that and that can be the difference between you getting a big storm versus you getting nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so far this year, we've seen what looks like promising moisture 10 days out. And then seven days out, like, well, that doesn't look so promising. And five days out, you're like, okay, we're not going to get much of anything. And then, you know, two days out, you realize you're going to get a chance of sprinkles and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 It's, um, it's been, uh, Kind of like the the calm before the storm though we haven't had a a, a really big storm winter storm that is um you know the 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 season kind of started to kick off with a little bit of that but i expect things will get get ramped up here as we head into the really colder months in in january february yeah and the dynamic models uh actually a lot of models i've, I've looked at for you know the latter part of the winter are a lot more bullish on moisture into the western U.S. There's better chance of moisture in our area, and frankly, like we need, I'll take whatever. I mean, I'll take five feet of snow this winter if that's what it takes. Well, not that that would in the drought around our area, but it would certainly help. We don't need yeah. another winter with only ten inches of snow here. We we need um, some moisture. We really um, not here in Lincoln specifically, but if you go about an hour and a half southwest here, like the conditions they had this year were. 
Uh, I would say the worst they've really been since at least the 1970s. I think some of the old timers say they haven't seen stuff this bad since they were younger in the 1950s. And to a certain degree, like, I know there's like, oh, I, you know, you people say I haven't seen this bad since I was a kid. Like sometimes it's an exaggeration, but in this case, their data that backed them up. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was looking at the map. It, it looks pretty, uh, looks pretty dire there in the midsection of the breadbasket of the, of the country. Um, it is. And I, I, you know, they're starting to get better moisture south of us and east of us. That, that's good. Um, and, you know, I think one concern, actually there are a couple of big concerns I have for agriculture. You know, one would be that if we, don't get the recharge this winter and early next spring. It's like, then we're basically relying on having a wet spring to get that recharge. And, you know, we would get the recharge. If we had a wet spring that would come to the expense of farmers being delayed, getting crops in the field. And that can have its own set of issues. And then they yeah. kind of grumpy, you know, if they're still planting, you know, Memorial day weekend, usually by, usually they want to be done by early mid May if they can. Um, but the other thing I think that I, I think this has gotten, some attention, but I don't know how much attention this has gotten in the national media. Mississippi has been very, very low. A lot of these rivers are very low. A lot yeah. of barge traffic uh, that we put grain, we put grain on for export goes on those barges. And this is the second year in a row we've had your record low. Or actually, I think this year we did set a record low river level at Memphis on the Mississippi. And you know, you look at soil moisture percentiles for a lot of the uh, Mississippi River basin; they're still really, really low. Yeah, and you know. Moisture this time of year tends to not be as convective. It tends to go more in the ground, which is great for recharging the soils, but we need to get some water back in that river. Yeah. Keep I, was, I mean, if I think back, like uh, 93 was uh, an El Nino year, right? Um, I'm thinking I think like... It was technically neutral, but that was... Um, you said a, like a late winter, early spring pattern that just didn't go away that summer. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I'm just, I, I remember being up in the, you know, Quad Cities in Iowa and seeing all the flooding from the Mississippi. I mean, the opposite of what we're seeing, you know, uh, right. they had too much, too much water um, during, during that. So, yeah. And I think, you know, from a, a climate change perspective, I think this is kind of, it's playing out the way that, you know, climate scientists have, have mostly said in terms of, you know, the dries are going to get drier and the wets are going to get wetter. Um, and we're kind of seeing that, you know, play out in real time. Yeah. Well, perhaps maybe the most noticeable feature of it so far has been the, you know, increase in temperatures. Like we probably are, um, like we're running well above, uh, norms, you know, for the last several months on global temperatures. And I think yeah. we actually have exceeded the, uh, I think I think I read the Economist recently that we've exceeded the one and a half degree Celsius threshold like eighty six days this year, and I think we've exceeded the two degree Celsius threshold um, a couple of times. Uh, so I, mean, I kind of tell people El Nino tends to give the Earth a bit of a fever. You know, it makes it a little bit warmer than, but it's like you know every strong El Nino is like almost like a new baseline for warmth. Yeah, and yeah. like our lot, even our our coldest years here in the last decade are still well above, you know, uh, pre-industrial norms or even first half of 20 or second half of 20th century norms. Yeah. Uh, it's rare actually uh, to see sustained cooler than average temperatures anywhere right now. Right. And, yeah. And I think, I think, you know, it's, it's a harbinger of things come for sure. Um, 
when I was looking back at the 15, 16 El Nino, and that's, of course, we broke the global temperature record in, I think, 2016. And, and yeah. this year is going to surpass that, right? Yeah. Um, almost, almost assuredly at this point. Yeah. And what that means is so like the, the, um, the analog for this year, 2023 is like 20, I, I think I see that as like 2015, for instance. So next year, uh, you know, the projections are for El Nino to continue um, into the spring for sure. And then maybe may see a transition to neutral by next summer. But I see the 2024 being an analog 2016. So I think I think next year is going to be, you know, warmer I mean, even still, than this year. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be warmer. I think we're going to break, you know, this year's this year's record. Um, and I think a lot of that came from a lot of uh, extreme warmth in the sea surface temperatures. Mm -hmm. um, had a lot of marine heat waves and that sort of thing. So I think we got more to come uh, in the year ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, you know, actually, I was just looking at the composites for um, the last four times we've kind of come off a, a stronger El Nino or moderate strong El Nino that peaked in the winter and sort of phased into neutral or weak La Nina later in the, in the next year. So 16, uh, 2010, 2003, and 1998 were, I think, kind of last four. And it's like, if you take a look at the composites, like there's actually a lot of good news for the Midwest. There's pretty good moisture in a lot of those years, generally yeah. speaking. And the drought signal tends to be um, southeast mid-Atlantic and to some degree like, you know, south, actually south central, southeast mid-Atlantic and maybe the southern plains. Um, and the heat, but, but there's a very strong warm signal, like almost everywhere in the lower 48 in those mm -hmm. years. There's like basically nowhere that's generally cooler than average. And, uh, you know, what I what I was telling well, you know, the group of farmers I've been talking with, it's like, yeah, I expect it to be warmer than average next year. So like, the good news is, is that all those years were, none of those years were like, had any real significant heat waves here. It was just warmer than average. Like we tend to have a little bit warmer overnight lows. We tend to be a little bit more humid. And... You know, I think for the average person, that may not sound that bad, but that that warmer overnight temperature is can be detrimental to crops if it's just consistently warm. It means you're accelerating through your reproductive cycle for corn. Uh, that could be more optimal for disease growth. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting this year, like, you know, we were I, I thought in June like there was no way in hell we were going to have any issues with diseases in this part of the country because, like, we were barely having crops growing here because it was so dry. Then started raining late June and rained all through July and in early August. It's like we had a stretch in early August where it was like cloudy every day, high of 80 to low of 70. And it was literally the optimal conditions for certain diseases on soybean. Oh, yeah. soybean. So it was like for the soybean this year, it was like an unholy trend. It was too dry early. Then it was, you know, super, it was wet and humid uh, at the right time for certain diseases that still were around. And some people didn't spray much fungicide this year because how dry it was early and then it was super hot late and that you know uh, took out uh, the, the top part of the moisture and because it was so dry early the soybean hadn't developed really good tap root so it didn't have anything deeper to tap into it's so like uh, the soybean yields around here this year generally speaking were um terrible yeah <laughs> put it nicely isn't that isn't that amazing to think about just like the just the different timing of different events and just how how critical that is you know, we were, this is just agriculture we're talking about, but you know, like there's just a lot of industries that rely on 
precipitation or you know heat or no heat and um and just the timing it, it's just amazing to me i it's why i got into this science honestly is just i'm just fascinated every single day about the chaos of the system and and how things you you could have the same almost the same you know environmental parameters but one thing's just a little bit different and it just sets everything off in a completely different direction right yep yeah, amazing. Well, it, it, it's interesting. You know, the, the timing. You're absolutely right. It's critical, especially for agriculture, and it's not just agriculture. But I mean, I that's my, my more of my focus uh, in this position. But you know, if you take a year like 2021, if you just looked at it and just looked at the you know precipitation and average temperatures, you wouldn't necessarily think that it was a golden year around here. Uh, but what was different about 21 versus recent years was 21. We had a lot of moisture in the spring, early spring, like March. Like we had an exceptional amount of rain here in March and early April that year. So we had a good profile of moisture to work with. We actually had a fair amount of heat that year. The difference was in 21, it was all really early and really late in growing season. It was early, it was first half of June, and it was the very end of August, early September. That middle portion of the year when you don't want the heat, you know, for like the corn tasseling and pod setting stage, we really didn't have that many real hot days. We had a lot of mid 80s and overnight lows and low to mid 60s which is a little more not i wouldn't say truly optimal but certainly a lot more ideal um you know versus you know this year if you looked at our summer precipitation totals you think oh it was a great year well the problem was it was so dry going in the year and then we had a near record dry spring yeah you know if we had had there were a lot of years we could have gotten away with how dry it was here in may and june we couldn't do, we couldn't afford it this year and we didn't have the reserve. We didn't like, you know, it, it's like, if you get laid off of a job, if you've got, if you've got a good bank reserve, you can, you can have, have handle that for a couple of months. You have no savings. Can't handle it. Yeah. You don't have the well, if capacity. 2009, 2010. Um, like if, 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 if that's an anomaly for this, or if that's a, an analog for this year coming up, I don't know if it is or not. Um, you got a lot of snow coming your way because that's when I moved to Nebraska was right after that, uh, right at the tail end of that, that 2009, 2010 winter. And there was yeah. still snow on the ground uh, at, at the, in the, at the end of March uh, from the three or four events, ma major events that y'all had during that winter. Yeah. There are some similarities. Oh, nine, but not, I mean, Oh, nine was significantly cooler uh, in the fall. We had a really, really cool wet October that year. We didn't have that this year. And I mean, frankly, by now in twenty in two thousand nine, I think we probably we had a foot of snow on the ground at least, and it was we've had yeah. snow days where we've been below zero. We have not had anything like that yet this winter. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have that coming, but you know, um, not any time, not any, not it's not looking like it so far. So, yeah, um, but you know, I think one of the areas with regard to climate change, you know, one of the um, entities or institutions that seems to be maybe on this the most uh is certainly a military I, mean, I i think for some people that might seem a bit of a surprise but i mean i think for and this is not a new thing for them i think they've been recognizing this as a national security threat or a threat multiplier for what at least 20 25 years right yeah, it's been a while i mean um i think people are surprised uh when they hear that but i mean yeah the military is called climate change a, a threat multiplier national security threat certainly it's that it became a little more mainstream you know 
around the 2008, 2009 timeframe for sure, um, started to gain more traction. Um, and over the last 10 to 15 years, you know, even through, um, you know, unfortunately, the topic is is politicized. Um, it's overly politicized. <laughs> but, you know, um, if you if you talk to people within the Pentagon, um, or it just this goes for any any group. And I think Catherine Hayhoe talks about this a lot too in climate communications, like if you talk to people in the area that they, that matters to them, mm -hmm. and you talk about how climate affects them you you get a better you get a better result in that conversation um whereas yeah. if, if if you come at it in certain ways you, you get people turned off right away if they sense that you've got some sort of political agenda to pull but yeah the the, the department of defense is, has recognized climate change as a national security concern for quite a while sure and you do you mind uh, just actually kind of defining what a threat multiplier is for the audience yeah. In fact, I'm actually working on a, I'm actually working on a book, a, a, a fiction novel. And so I just, I've been doing a lot of research too, like on particularly on the drought in Syria and how that precipitated, um, you know, how that, how that added to, so let's talk about, I guess that's the perfect example that I think about. Um, there's some research back and forth on, you know, how much did, there was some, you know, pretty significant drought that was going on in the early 2000s, um, you know, 2007 through 2009, especially. Um, so if, if you don't consider the environment for a, a second, but you just think about like all the things that go into security for a nation, you know, a country or, in that, or a region or whatever the case is, you know, there's all kinds of things. There's a lot of it's socioeconomic, you know, poverty weighs in pretty heavily. Um, you know, there could be civil unrest. So this is right around the time um, of the um, Arab Spring, where there's a lot of uprisings going on around um, around the Middle East. And so People are people are put down, you know, politically or because of their religion or whatever the case is. Um, and so the whole idea of, uh, you know, the climate or the changing climate as a threat multiplier is um, it's like you have all these different pieces of socioeconomic instability that are, you know, we all, all every country ha is is secure or insecure because of these socioeconomic factors. And then you just kind of drop this environmental um, challenge in the middle of it. In this case, in Syria, it was years of drought. Um, and that can be the, the last domino or the last straw that kind of breaks the camel's back, right? So um, in Syria, for instance, there had been years and years of poor water management policies by the Assad government. Um, there was a lot of sectarian strife between uh, the um, the Muslim population and the Kurds that were out there. Um, and then, because of all that, and you have you know uh, poor you know political you know um, leadership and a, a bunch of other things. You get a drought and it just it just it's it's the flame you know that that lights the fire um for, for instance so 
That's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of I, the Syria example is a pretty good, pretty good example of that. Sure. Yeah, and actually, we published a paper on uh, the you know kind of link between the uh, horrific flash drought in uh, southwestern Russia in 2010 and you know the link to Arab Spring. Now, it wasn't like the drought there caused the Arab Spring. It was you know it was a domino effects of the timing of that drought in Russia in 2010 was such that it really, really, really hampered the wheat yields. And in Russia, they had actually just passed something earlier that year that said that basically they were going to be, you know, some sort of self-sufficiency type of program that, that they were going to, you know, may have enough for their own. Yeah, they were going to limit their exports, basically. Right. So that there, when there became, uh, became apparent how bad the drought was in that area, then uh, there was a sphere of an export ban and prices started going up. And it was really the increase. The, it was the radic, drastic increase in price um, for like uh, certain grain items in Egypt and Tunisia and Libya that you know, was kind of considered like a, a last straw type of deal for your, you know, for areas where you already had social unrest. And what you're describing, it's almost like uh, you hear a term in, uh, in healthcare called pre-existing conditions. You know, somebody that has pre-existing conditions gets disease A. It's going to have a most likely going to have a harder time with somebody that doesn't have a lot of those same conditions. Yeah. Um, so how much resilience uh, your society has built in can make a huge difference in how we handle climate change. Oh, for sure. And yeah. you know, I think and, and if you don't have if you don't have those socioeconomic kind of things to withstand those climate shocks, then then. Yeah, it, it's going to be, it doesn't guarantee, just because you have a drought or let's say a, a series of floods or whatever, it doesn't guarantee that a society is going to collapse or you're going to have sectarian strife. They're just, it's a very dynamic situation. Uh, it just makes you kind of like the pre-existing conditions. It makes a community or a country more susceptible so that when that climate shock happens, it's harder for them to actually withstand those shocks, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, UNL, a lot of other, you know, land grant institutions across the country, certainly in the Midwest are trying to do, since, you know, we have a lot of commodity agriculture in this part of the country, we're trying to work with producers to prepare themselves for extreme weather. Now, we don't necessarily, we're not beating them down you know, over the face with climate change, talking about climate change specifically, I mean, you know, we do some, but it's, it's more about trying to prepare for extreme weather. Cause we're going, we're going to have that anyway. And there's a really strong likelihood that we're going to have more of these extreme events in the future, but how you manage that could mean the difference between you being able to stay in business for many, many years and pass it down your farm to your kids and grandkids, or you not being able to do that. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that I think a big challenge for humanity, though, um, and this is particularly true, I feel like in American culture is we we have this expectation that things are going to stay the same. You know, we, we want things to stay the same. We want stability. And so, I mean, but climate, the way that climate is changing and, and the way it's accelerating in some ways, you know, so let's take agriculture, for instance, like it may not be good to continue to grow the same crops that we've grown for decades in the same region as the climate warms, for instance. So, you know, maybe in Nebraska, we should be looking at the crops that they're growing in Oklahoma and, you know, North Texas, you know, so 
humanity, we just really have to, and it's really hard, right? You know, like I'm thinking of like sea, sea level rise too, like, hey, well, you know, I, my, my family's lived here in this community along the coast for generations. And, you know, so we're asking people to proactively think about changing, you know, um, what generations of, of, of experience of the human experience. And it's just so difficult, so difficult. It is. And, you know, there's still a, a small fragment of society that thinks this is a hoax or this isn't a real problem, which, you know, I, I, I'm not going to waste time trying to convince those people that, that it is a problem. If at this point, if you don't either get it or you don't, um, but I do think there's a number of people that might have some misconceptions about causes. But regardless, if you're taking proactive action, then it's like I kind of don't some way care if you think this is all a natural cycle versus anthropogenically driven. Um, if you're doing something proactive, me, that's a win. Um, you know, I'll call it that. Maybe some people may not agree with that, uh, that viewpoint. But that's just sort of my take on it. Um, well, that's how I've that's how I've approached it. Like, in, I've spent time in the Pentagon, and um, you you have in, in every community, whether it's the Pentagon or agriculture, or whatever the case is, uh, business. You know, you ha you're, you're going to have people that 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 don't believe in it, and and, and so it, it it does come down to, and you're talking to people about it. And Catherine Hayo again, it talks about this, like talk about it in in terms that matter to them. So, for instance. I had I was talking to someone in the Pentagon, uh, you know, and I won't say what service or anything like that they're from, but like, um, okay, you know, you ask them, okay, what do you do? Well, I, I drive tanks or I fly planes or whatever the case is. And I'm like, okay, well, do you if you're driving tanks, do you care about, you know, the the fact that this region is gonna, you know, if, if you if you knew that this region was going to experience wetter conditions, and we had to operate in that area, and it's going to be harder to, you know, maneuver your tanks in a wetter environment. Oh, yeah, I, I do care about that. And then then you start, you know, you start illuminating things or, for instance, aviation, you, you start asking them, well, do you care about the amount of cargo that you can put on an airplane? Um, yeah, I do. OK, well, when it's hotter, you can't carry as much cargo. And you're like, oh, that's true. I didn't think about that. So you just start to kind of like break things down a little bit in smaller chunks for individuals that they care about. You don't have to talk, like you said, you don't have to talk about the fact whether it's anthropogenic or whether it's natural or this and that. Um, right. Just stay away from that and just talk about what right. matters I mean, to them. It, right? When people ask me, it's like, oh, is this natural cycle or, or is this man-made? And it was like, well, this is almost, most of what we're seeing is anthropogenic. And I, I think I don't know if Mar Marshall Shepard came up with this totally on his own or if he borrowed this quote, but I, I really like it. He talks about how your grass will grow naturally in your yard, at least in most places, maybe not in Arizona or West Texas, but in most places your grass will grow relatively naturally. It grows a lot differently if you add fertilizer two, three or four times a year. It, we are adding um, you know, a lot of warmth because of our activities. And there's really no way. I mean, if you just... And I, I don't know how, how much people talk about um, like Earth's energy balance and, you know, trying to explain to people that, you know, we, we care about these gases, especially carbon dioxide and methane, because they absorb fairly well in a part of the uh, long wave spectrum where water vapor doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's one thing I really try to drill home in the class I taught this last spring. It's like, this is why we care about this. Like, if, if, if 
if it wasn't for that, maybe we could we could pump as much CO2 in the atmosphere as we want. Um, and with agriculture specifically, I, I think some of the sometimes I sense that it's not that there's a, a disbelief uh, that it, there's an issue. It's more of a they don't like the solutions or they don't like the being probably in their minds targeted specifically because, you know, cows emit a lot of methane and, you know, certain aspects of agriculture are, um, you know, they are a, as a, as an industry, pretty high emitter, but I, you could make the counter argument that they also are uniquely vulnerable as an institution or as an industry. So I, what I told the class is like, look, agriculture is a, is a contributor to climate change. It's a victim of climate change, and it also can be a solution to climate change with, uh, you know, better um, sequestration methods and things like that. Um, that kind of gets into our next topics. I, I, how do you think we're doing with adaptation measures in this country, or just maybe around the globe? Well. I've always, particularly in the last few years, um, last five to ten years, I've, I've, I've always been a little dismayed by so mitigation. So you got mitigation and adaptation, um, and, and both of them have to happen for us to achieve resilience. Adaptation and mitigation measures. I've I've been a little dismayed though that the lion's share of like funding and there's a good there's a good. Uh, graphic in the new national climate assessment that shows this, but the amount of funding that's gone towards mitigation measures over the last decade versus adaptation, like there's way more going towards mitigation measures, which is, you know, we're trying to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide or whatever the case is where I, 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 it just shocks me because when I think about adaptation, I'm like, adaptation is, are, are things to help us like here and now mm-hmm. um, they're also supposed to help us, you know, decades in the future, but it just shocks me that we've put such little um, investment towards adaptation measures compared to mitigation. Again, not saying that both aren't important or that mitigation is, is less important, but I, I feel like, I feel like, uh, and, and I think the latest, the last couple of, uh, UN United Nations COPS has put a, has shown a light a little bit on adaptation. I know they talked about it a little bit at this one too. I think we need more, and I think a light is finally shining on this problem. Like we need, you know, better inve- investment in in adaptation, whether that's, you know, coastal communities or you know, interior communities. Um, we know that climate is changing. We know some of those changes are accelerating, especially for certain parts of the war, um, the, the country. Mm-hmm. And so the biggest challenge, uh, one of the biggest challenges is, is the uncertainty of the information for what the future is going to look like. But we got to stop. We got to have communities stop looking at the past as, as if the past is going to happen in the future. And we start we have to start looking at utilizing future climate projections a little bit better to make better adaptation decisions. No, I, I fully agree with that assessment. And, you know, I, I wonder if some of it's a psychologically, we don't want to admit that we have to adapt to a changing climate. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Part of it's that, but part of it's also people, we don't even do this from a, 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 a short-term weather perspective, right? I mean, like if let's, the hurricane is a perfect example, you know, um, there's uncertainty with that, where that hurricane's going to fall. 
Um, and, and so as that uncertainty kind of starts to lock in, we still have people in communities who don't act based on, you know, good scientific information because of a variety of, of, of circumstances. It could be that they don't have the funding to, you know, they don't have the resources to up and leave and evacuate, right? But the, and so if you magnify that decision to evacuate or not for a hurricane to climate change and like, well, there's still a fair amount of uncertainty, like people like, wait a second, you want me to spend a couple extra million dollars on this infrastructure project to account for what we think the future climate might be, but it may not be, it might be in this range or whatever the case is. It's really difficult for communities to say, you know, I'm going to pay a dime to save a dollar 20 years from now. I'm going to pay a dime today to save a dollar 20 years from now. But that's, that's what we're asking communities to do. I think that's, you know, the big reason why adaptation is, is, is hard. I just don't understand why adaptation is, is so much harder to, to invest in and fund in than mitigation. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's probably we could we could probably spend an hour yeah, with, a whole podcast on that one. Yeah, on, on that. Um, yeah, I think some of us just psychologically don't want to admit it, or we just like oh, yeah. defensive. But you know, I I think at some points it's like I, you know, and I, I tend to be more of a glass half full optimistic type person. I I think we will generally manage to adapt uh, in some capacity, but you know, I think we have to be realistic at where things are. It's like well, you're still are admitting. You know, I mean, I think the U.S. per capita emissions are are dropping. China's probably peaking soon, but we're still emitting vast amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And you're still seeing, uh, you know, oil and natural gas companies aren't are not going away. There's still a prospect for um, those to keep going up. And, you know, you think and I sometimes I feel like um, there are certain groups that want to think there's just like a magic bullet solution or something. You know? Oh yeah. I think feel like electric cars are like to some people are like this magic solution. And it's like, you know, granted, I'm not remotely against electric cars, but I think we have to acknowledge like um, a, they're not practical for a large section of the country currently. And B, I read uh, the economist had an article last week that um, Ford is currently losing $62,000 per electric vehicle right now. Oh Yeah. I, so, I, believe, I mean, like, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning that uh, there was an article in the business section on, uh, you know, dealers are right now they're having a hard time moving electric vehicles because people, um, they're just not practical for them or they're too expensive. Or like one lady said she had a, bought a Tesla and it broke down or she had a flat tire. And because the tire that was on the Tesla was a specialized tire in the area she was in, they didn't have the tire. So she's like, I stranded there for a couple of days and like, well, that uh, she now is like, well, I, I love electric cars, but it's like, I don't want to get stranded. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the the infrastructure. Yep. We're just at the beginning and the, the infrastructure is just not in place for it, whether that's, you know, the EV charging and, it, you know, or what you just mentioned, you know, to get maintenance on it. And so um, when you think about there's just a lot of things that it's not a magic bullet, right? But people want to talk about it as if it is, you know, um, go, and, and one of my pet peeves is to hear it talked about as, as, as clean technology. It's not clean. It's cleaner than fossil fuels. I mean, in terms of emissions, it's clean, but the, the batteries are not clean. Batteries are not. And the way that in which we get the materials for those batteries people kind of turned a blind eye towards how do you, how do we get, you know, the, those, those materials, the lithium or whatever, it's not 
it's a lot of it's outsourced a lot of it's in other countries and and how let's see, a lot of countries in africa have these critical minerals for the ev technology and the solar technology um you know china obviously doesn't have the best practices when it comes to producing something so i mean like it it's cleaner but uh, you know just we have to look at the whole life cycle of how that technology is put together but also how we recycle it or it it gets you know when those batteries go away like or when they die or whatever the case is where do they go and that i mean so you know everything has to be looked at in context right um i am so don't get me wrong i am super glad that we are as a society looking at these things um to be and protect you know what I, what we call our one earth system um and try to be better stewards of the planet regardless right and we should be doing that regardless um and and it shouldn't be tied to some sort of political ideology but unfortunately some of this stuff always is yeah um, absolutely and i think sometimes ad adaptation measures um sometimes they can take quite a while just for even yeah. uh you know, for example, I last Thursday, I was speaking at a successful farmer. It's called Successful Farmer. It's a workshop that they uh, put on uh, extension and Bayer puts on jointly. And uh, they had a farmer panel, uh, three younger farmers from this area. And, you know, it's talking about things that they've done in their operations to um, it was they weren't specifically talking about climate change, even though I, these three individuals would, you know, or I think are very aware of what's going on. Um, but they, they were really talking about how they had integrated more livestock back in their operations and they had um, moved to cover crops a long, long time ago. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, things like really trying to improve your soil health, um, that to me for agriculture is a significant um, you know, way to try to adapt to climate change, try to mitigate uh, against um, extreme weather. And, but you know, it, you you don't get it over. You don't hear about that though. You don't hear about that a lot. You know, but I mean, it, it it really. So if you think about it, if you have, if you could increase. So this one guy uh, talked about how over the course of twenty years they've added one point uh, to of organic matter to their soil. They're holding four more. He said he, they were holding four more inches of water in the soil now than they did twenty years ago. So there, if you think about it you're capturing more of the heavy rain events. You're keeping more of that moisture in the ground. You know, you're able to hold three more inches of water. I mean, that could be the difference in having a really good year and having not a good year. I mean, it's yeah. actually amazing, um, at least with corn and soybean yields, what one extra rain does for you. I mean, it could be a difference between 160 and 230 bushel acre on corn. Yeah, so and they're doing that. They're creating that environment naturally. Or is it? Is yeah, it through through, uh, sort of through different uh, through different cover crops and uh, other okay. uh, less invasive techniques with the managing the soil. Um, but yeah. again, like you know, it's, it's not an immediate return. I mean, I think the sense I got was a lot of what they're doing takes about five, even maybe ten years. And I think some people, I think our society, particularly now that we've got smartphones and social media, is like we want instant gratification. Yeah, you know, telling people that yeah, it's going to take you know, five to 10 years for us to really show return is not for some oh, people, yeah. this isn't feasible. <laughs> or they yeah, think we're, we're, we're definitely an impatient society. And, and if you think about it from a political perspective, those timelines do not fit within, they don't. you know, the political spectrum. Right. And so you just got to have a lot of things vying for attention.
Uh, that's for sure. Yeah. No, that's where I think we're things like how we invest in adaptation measures and things that actually really maybe help give people some sort of economic buffer or give people incentive to actually do some of these more proactive measures. I, I don't really think we have a choice personally, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. We have to think about everything from a return on investment and, and, you know, and like one of the things that I've been doing some research about too, um, over the last several months is like, okay, well, let's solve a specific problem, you know, rather than trying to solve all the problems all at once, because then, you know, we just get in this analysis paralysis phase where, you know, um, but if you, if you get after solving a specific problem and you figure out what's the return on investment with these different, you know, um, scenarios, um, then you can actually get effect to positive change you want. No, absolutely. So, well, I think we're starting right up on time today. Um, so I probably should let you get on to on your day. Um, again, it was great to have Ryan Harris on this morning. And uh, by the way, all of you can uh, listen to him and Dr. Jeff Cunningham on the Triple Point podcast. Thank you so much for coming on today, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Eric. It's been great to be on here with you.